You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear a conversation that I had with a lovely lady called Maggie Westwater. And Maggie is one of the authors behind the study that um, looked into sugar addiction just recently. I think it was published last month. Um, I was pretty excited to read this study, you'll find out why, um, because I go on about it a bit. But um, yeah, so what do we get into in this conversation? So we look at um, what animal studies into addiction can tell us about human behaviour, and we look at other sort of studies into different types of addiction, and what things like drug addiction can tell us about sugar addiction. And uh, we also talk about restriction quite a lot, actually, and how if um, sugar addiction is not an addiction at all, then what's going on there? And I'll give you a clue. Restriction is probably the problem. Anyway, well, here's my conversation with Maggie. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so you're in Cambridge. I am, yes. I'm a PhD student here in the Department of Psychiatry, where I'm studying eating disorders for my thesis. And what made you be interested in studying eating disorders? Yeah, well, I studied neuroscience um, when I was an undergraduate, and I studied in the U.S., and I've always been really interested in women's health, um, but I actually kind of fell into the field because it was the first opportunity that really came to me to start working with um, neuroimaging, and as soon as I started talking to patients, I became really interested in the field, and it was just something where I was able to spend a lot of time with patients and work with them in research, and it was something that I felt like I could contribute to, hopefully, throughout my career. So neuroimaging, right? Tell me, about, yes. tell me about that, or for anybody that, like, can you explain what neuroimaging? Yeah, so neuroimaging is just a multitude of different methods that we can use to look at the structure and function of the brain. So some of these methods would include magnetic resonance imaging, where we can take these high-resolution pictures using a really big magnet. And others would include um, electroencephalography, where we kind of put um, electrodes on the brain and look at electrical patterns. And that gives us a really nice uh, temporal resolution to look at how things are firing throughout the brain. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of things I've worked with. Oh, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it keeps me entertained, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure it does. So the reason I reached out to you about um, a study that... I was, I was just thrilled to read it, actually, um, about the, the sugar addiction. And so I think I'll just let you explain. Yeah, that yeah. sounds good. So I'm really glad that you found it interesting and you're happy to see something um, written about the topic in maybe a different way. So we, um, I worked with my supervisors, Paul Fletcher and Hisham Zaudin, on a review that was looking at this concept of sugar addiction, which I think most of your listeners have probably heard of just through interacting with social media and the internet. I'm pretty sure that most of my my (laughs) listeners, which are are largely an anorexia base, are already convinced that they have a sugar addiction. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, it really spans the spectrum of, of, yeah, most people probably feel that way. Um, But but like you said, in some groups in particular. So so yeah, this is a really popular notion as well as in the obesity field is potentially a reason or mechanism by which people become and maintain um, an obese state. 
So we kind of felt that this um, idea has really gained a lot of traction and influence based on some animal model literature. So these are studies of usually mice and rats um, in a lab under very specific conditions. And then this research is translated to humans as well as clinical populations like an anorexic population or an obese population. Um, and kind of has been used to guide research in some of our clinical practice. And we really felt like maybe this literature needed to be re-examined um, in a new way. And we wanted to really examine some evidence of drug addiction in response to cocaine and heroin use in, in rodents and how that might mimic or not mimic um, what happens to brain the brain and behavior when you give these same animals um, sugar or another you know, sweet substance like yeah. sucralose. Yeah. And um, I'm always a huge fan of the of the rodent studies because it's really difficult to psychoanalyze a rat. Um, it is. <laughs> so I love the animal studies because um, we can actually look at it from a maybe a different lens rather than say, oh, you know, Mr. Rat's trying to do this or that or because Mrs. Rat said this. <laughs> yeah. You can just look at it I as a pure it behavioral thing. Exactly. I think it gives us a great opportunity to really identify and test a certain mechanism. So um, through decades of research, people have really developed a mechanism by which we think drug addiction comes about based on different changes related to the neurotransmitter dopamine, which I'm sure many people have heard of. Um, and it's a monoamine transmitter that's related to learning and motivation. Um, and then other transmitters like serotonin, um, the endogenous opioid system. So that really allows us to look at under certain conditions when we're exposing these animals to drugs, restricting their access or manipulating it in certain ways, how does that affect how the brain is functioning and how does it affect how it's structurally changing? And this could be at the cellular level or at kind of a more a larger scale across different brain regions. So it's a really, a really useful technique. But I think there can be some challenges when you try to re relay that into a human where we live in a much more complex and enriched environment and especially when it comes to food like sugar I mean very few people are just eating plain sugar cubes so I think when you make this assertion that we're addicted to sugar well what is really in these sweet foods are we talking about sugar or are we talking about sweet foods which have other um, nutritive values they have other flavors and I think that that's part of what we were trying to tease apart in our review was really looking at in these animal models where it's so highly how does that actually encapsulate the human experience and what we might be talking about when people throw around these terms like food addiction and sugar addiction? Mm -hmm. So what, do you what was your hypothesis? What were you expecting to find? Yeah, well, our aim was really to place the findings of studies of um, cocaine and heroin addiction side by side with studies of sugar addiction in these animals. And we tested this by looking at how these studies progress through the mechanism that has been outlined to kind of bring about addiction, um, and specifically substance use disorder, which is the terminology used in the um, DSM-5. And we had presumed that we would see sugar addiction fall short in some place. Um, so we kind of broke this down into the first stage of developing uh, substance use disorder is developing kind of a binging-like um, behavior related to drug use. So when people start using drugs recreationally, they affect neurotransmitters in the brain, and then the person becomes really sensitive to drug-seeking cues. It might be seeing someone lighting up a cigarette, or it could be kind of an emotional state even that you're in. And then that leads to the second stage, which is this increased um, motivation to seek drugs. Um, and that in kind of neuroscience jargon is called incentive salience. So there's cravings, there's this really strong desire to 
to seek the substance. And then the final stage is this compulsive drug-seeking behavior where no matter what, you know, these animals see a cue or a person sees a cue and they just have to find that drug. Um, so we wanted to see, okay, in terms of this model, does sugar addiction actually stand up to it? And we did not find much evidence to support that it does. And moreover, we found that actually the behavior of kind of binge-like sugar consumption is directly related to the paradigm or the scheduling that the experimenter uses to give animals access to sugar. So it's really difficult to disentangle this homeostatic drive to eat food that we all have. And that's very highly disrupted, obviously, in, in patients with eating disorders as well as people with obesity. Um, but these animals are really only showing this type of binge-like pattern when they're restricted, sometimes for up to 36 hours without food. Yeah. So you can see that it's quite hard to draw a connection to drug use when you're really impacting this homeostatic system, right. which I think is really important to, ma to mention. Well, the part of reading the, the um, study when I saw it was, that had me jumping up and down was the intermittent access bit. The, exactly. The understanding this intermittent access. And so restriction of food is what leads to the tendency to want to eat a lot of that food, which makes total sense from if you think yeah. about what how, how our brains are supposed to deal with the three things that are most important to us, which are food, water, and oxygen, um, that restricting one of those is going to make the brain want it more. Um, and I think that's really quite also terrifying for people to understand. I think that there is a degree of resistance to that because people seem to take the idea of, well, if unrestricted eating as to saying, oh, that means you're just going to be eating highly palatable foods the whole time. And it's like, no, if you eat without restriction, your desire for these foods will lower because your brain won't be seeking them or thinking that you're not going to get them for a while. So eating without restriction doesn't necessarily mean you're just binge eating on highly palatable foods the whole time. In fact, it can mean quite the opposite. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And I think, you know, my PhD is working with women with bulimia and nervosa. So we see a lot of that type of cycle of kind of restriction and then the fear that if I eat anything, I'm going to have a loss of control binge eating episode and eat all of these foods that, you know, I'm, that really perpetuates that anxiety. And I think one of the most fascinating aspects about this field is kind of the metabolic changes, like you mentioned, that, you know, I think one aspect that really hasn't been mentioned very much is how do these certain macronutrients affect our insulin response and how does insulin and blood glucose affect the foods that we choose to eat? I mean, we know that if you give someone, you know, something that's high sugar and doesn't have a lot of other um, nutrients in it, that their blood glucose is going to spike, insulin is going to rise to bring it down, and then they're going to feel more hungry. So I think that we have to think about how is metabolism acting potentially separately from some of the, the brain changes and the learning that we have and how can that be be modified like you're saying by kind of unrestricted eating of more balanced foods so this is really pulling it away a bit from this addiction discussion and saying well how is the body actually responding to these foods and how might it kind of stabilize over time like you're yeah. saying yeah. yeah and and with that that sort of discussion on sugar um, I know that within people with the eating disorder population, just and maybe just people in general, there's a tendency to, oh, maybe I'm craving something that's sweet, but instead of having something sweet, I'm going to have something with artificial sweeteners in or, or something that... So I'm interested in your perspective on how using artificial sweeteners can sort of distort or maybe mess that whole relationship up. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating um, question, and there's some really interesting new research coming out on that. I would say, in general, there's been some recent evidence that 
um, the consumption of artificially sweetened beverages like a Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi um, can lead to diabetes in the long term, you know, type 2 diabetes, and it can have a negative impact. Um, of course, I think some people with eating disorders use them to kind of stave off feelings of exactly. hunger, mm. um, which it might be effective in the, lo- in the short term. Um, so I think that's a really interesting question. And um, Dana Small, who's a researcher at Yale, is actually looking into some of this work in her research and really trying to parse out how are these artificial sweeteners affecting brain responses and metabolism? And is it really related to that? Or is it also the other food and the other macronutrients we would consume with a beverage like that? I think that taking someone who I used to use artificial sweeteners all the time just to sort of try and respond to my desire to eat sweet foods, but then also respond to my fear about consuming calories at the same time. Um, then in, in that time when I was using those, I was also binging on a really regular basis. And it's sort of when I actually started to kind of force myself to eat proper amounts of food, allow myself fat, allow myself sugar, um, on a regular basis, the binge eating stopped. Um, I know, but I also have no desire really to consume artificial sweeteners or anything like that. I guess I, I just got out of the habit of doing it, but it, it, it kind of like at the time, it just felt like the no brainer response. Oh, I want something sweet, but I'm scared of the calories. So I'll go for an artificial sweetener. But I just think that because I wasn't allowing my brain to have what it really wanted, it would just, I would just binge at some point anyway. Yeah, no, I think that um, certainly kind of that that sort of cognitive dissociation that you're talking about, kind of going for the taste that you want, even though there's this fear of, of potentially the calories related to that and that driving these habits. I think you also brought up a good point that, you know, we can form really strong habits around taste. Um, that doesn't substantiate an addiction, but it certainly is a behavior that can be very, very distressing. But I think through time and recovery, like you've described for yourself, you know, we can form new habits. And I think that that's kind of the challenge. And there might be different inputs to that. Like maybe it is changing up the diet a bit, like you said, establishing a regular meal pattern. And that's going to kind of help you form new habits. And then the old ones won't be reinforced as much. And then they kind of wane. So you you might see that the value, you know, the value underlying that desire for the sweet taste is kind of going to, to be fluid throughout someone's life. And I think that but that's a really good point that you just yeah, brought up. And on the habit thing, it's just also I'd like to point out that it wasn't I was in a binge restrict cycle for a really long time. It's not like I just ate well one day and then that was gone. It took me a long time of eating and eating and eating regularly and eating unrestricted for that for that binge cycle to amend itself. But it did. And although I say it took a long time, it didn't take half as long as my brain feared it would, which was... Exactly. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. But I I just don't want people to think, oh, they can just do one day of unrestricted eating and then they'll they'll never, then it will be done. No, it, it takes a while. Your brain, I think, has to really learn that food really is abundant. There's no more restriction that I'm going yeah. to happen before it-, it will. And I think there's definitely, you know, room for a lot of research to look at this phase of recovery and see, you know, how long, like you're saying, it definitely is not an overnight switch, but how long does it take for the metabolism to kind of work itself out? I mean, part of my PhD is really actually looking at um, how are gut hormones different in women with with eating disorders compared to non-patients and how is that related to differences and kind of feelings of stress and negative mood and these feeding patterns. So I think that this is really kind of an unknown area that we need to really start looking yes, at. Yes, and fascinating because I can tell you I was always stressed, always anxious when my body was in a state of malnutrition. 
it's just ongoing in even the smallest things that now I just be like, oh, well, shit happens, would completely throw me into a, a bit of a kind of like breakdown, tears, stressing out. I just couldn't seem to be able to handle anything in constant state of, of like highly strung stressed outness. Um, yeah. It's just been incredible to me because I was in, had anorexia for so long. I just assumed that that was my personality. Uh, it was quite, it's quite nice to realize that that was, that was just my personality on malnutrition. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think that can be a huge relief. And I, I know that's something that I really see a lot when I'm talking to patients for my research is kind of this hypervigilance and anxiety that you're talking about of kind of holding everything together and how much of that is really tied to the nutritive element. And, and I think it can be really freeing, as you say, to realize, you know, this isn't just ingrained in my identity, but this can be a part of my life that, that I can move forward yeah. from. And I really like, I really like the sort of physiological approach here um, rather than like, oh, this is a hundred percent psychological and it's just we only need to look at what's going on in the brain, but actually looking at the body as a whole, because the body as a whole is affected by malnutrition. And it sounds like you're looking at what's going on in the gut as well. Yes. So we are specifically, in my research, looking at gut hormones. Um, so I know there's been quite a bit of research coming out on the microbiome, which is another really fascinating aspect, you know, kind of looking at, I mean, the microbiome is all over our body, but obviously people are looking primarily at the gastrointestinal tract and eating disorders. So I'm really interested in how stress can impact gut hormones and how that can actually relate to differences in feeding behavior. Um, so we're really trying to integrate that with some data that we get from brain imaging and, and hopefully that will help us gain a better understanding of how, um, you know, people can experience such a, an intense loss of control and really change their eating patterns in these short period of time. So, so I'm really trying to model kind of a shorter window of feelings of anxiety and stress and how that relates to um, eating behavior. But I think in the long term, it would be great to do more kind of, of this deep dive into the microbiome and other aspects of, of gut health for sure. Mm -hmm. So what's the, it sounds like you've got this sort of research, you're currently looking into it. Um, yes. And what does that involve? How are you going about researching this? Yeah, so we um, are recruiting women in Cambridge now, and they essentially come into our unit for this overnight stay. Um, so we do some brain imaging, we do some scanning to look at body composition, um, and throughout our, our brain scans, we do certain tasks that look at different cognitive um, control um, phenotypes and then we take some blood samples throughout while we do a manipulation to kind of impact mood and then look at how these gut hormones change throughout that scan and how that can be related to eating after the scan so we have this amazing new unit in Cambridge that's called the eating behavior unit which has been designed to be kind of a naturalistic environment um, for patients to come up and just kind of hang out and and eat some food and we can see kind of how do they change preferences based on macronutrients or taste so we've selected some different foods for that. So yeah, I think it's pretty exciting work mm. and I'm really excited to, you know, for the future me in three years to be able to look at all of the data and write it up and, and talk to patients about it and see, you know, that's how the, they That's the thing with you guys. You're in it for the long haul, aren't you? It's <laughs> three years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, are, you yeah. Still, are you still looking for people in the Cambridge area? I am, yes. So if any of your followers are interested, um, yeah. we'd be more than happy. London as well. So, you know, if you yeah. can get here by train, then we would be happy to have you. <laughs> okay, so UK-based listeners, um, how would they get in contact with you? 
Yeah, they can um, email me. Do you want me to give you my email now? Give it to me now. I'll also put it in the show notes so that people can just click yeah. through. Great. It's um, mw658 at cam.ac.uk. Excellent. Yeah, so that will be in the show notes, guys, so you can you can email. That would be a fantastic project to be part of, I think. Um, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really exciting. Um, so back to the um, to the sugar addiction uh, research that you did. If you could pick out anything that surprised you about that research, what's what maybe stands out to you? I was really surprised when we started to look at um, this kind of this idea that these certain problem foods that are related to kind of this addiction phenotype, so foods that are really high sugar or maybe low fiber, um, that they actually are not really consistent across people. So there was this really fascinating study that was published in Cell, um, this really high impact journal in 2015 by ZV and colleagues, and they found that the same person, if you give them kind of two biscuits or a banana, can have an entirely different um, postprandial response to those foods. And I just thought that was so fascinating because I think so many of us, um, you know, my background is in neuroscience, so I've had to learn a lot about nutrition in this work. But we kind of assume, oh, well, cookies are going to have the same impact on everyone. Um, but really that there's huge variability across people. And I think that it was one of the first studies that really showed that on a large scale. Was, was that the one that was done in Israel? Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I I think that one's fascinating as well. And I I often bring it up with my clients to explain like the calorie information on the back of the nutritional information on the back of the package really means next to nothing because we all process food differently anyway, and our bodies all have their own unique response. Um, yeah. So I, I loved that study too. <laughs> yeah, it still is one of my top five favorite studies. You know, since that time. And the other thing I'll say about that nutrient information you just mentioned, some of it can actually be hundred, like a hundred years old or decades old and not updated. So not only yep. might it not apply to you as an individual, but it might just be you know factually you incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I'm. I think it's isn't it sort of most nutritional information is supposed to be between twenty five and fifty percent out anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like, exactly it's, it's so freeing though for a person with anorexia who who sort of counts calories and looks on that I actually found it really freeing to um be able to be like oh it didn't mean anything anyway <laughs> yeah I think that can be an amazing tool just to kind of realize that there's that uncertainty that's inherent with that information and having to really let go of that yeah so I yeah and people I think... respond to that really well <laughs> I, I think there's there's often there's the, there seems to be the new thing or something every now and then that causes a load of hype. And, you know, it's like it was fat um, and it was carbohydrates. And, it, and it's just sort of um, I think that it, it does become problematic when we break. We just sort of single out a macronutrient and go, that's bad. <laughs> Definitely. I think it's really. Yeah, I think it's really bad for people kind of self pathologizing or potentially feeling, you know, that, that they're. I think it can be really dangerous in terms of stigma and I think it can be dangerous in terms of someone feeling really alone and isolated in terms of their eating behaviors and feeling like there's something wrong with me. Why am I having this problem, you know, because of this, this macronutrient. So I think we all need to really think about that when we, we discuss these things in the literature and, you know, um, with the public. The irony is though, is it tends to work the other way though, doesn't it? If, if we Mm -hmm. single out something and say, sugar's bad, everybody be scared of it and ignore and um, avoid it then all that happens is that response is people restrict it and then end up actually 
binging on it as a response to restriction and eating more of it as a result, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. And I think it's kind of that same exercise is don't think about the white bear. And then you just end up thinking about the white bear in yeah. some ways, you know. So I think, like you're saying, just building in this unrestricted diet and kind of thinking about having meals that are incorporating all of these different macronutrients instead of labeling one that becomes then the object that you're kind of constructing your life around is, is probably a much healthier outlook on, on your interactions with these different uh, nutrients. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Uh, anything else that you think relevant that you'd like to tell us? Um, I would say that I think, you know, people should really, whenever you see something related to addiction in the news, I think you should really take it with a grain of salt because, you know, all of the discussions we have about psychiatry, about mental health, about neuroscience are restricted by the language that we choose to use. And I think that language is really powerful. And I know we're living in a time where, you know, sometimes words are thrown around and don't really mean very much. But I think we do need to think of how is the use of addiction actually shaping how we study eating disorders? And is it shaping it in a way that's actually beneficial to to people who live with them? Um, And that's something that I, you know, wanted to convey in this paper is that by using the word addiction, we're actually really, you know, using a very narrow approach to studying these things. And I think we need to think more broadly. And that's why I wanted to emphasize the metabolic aspects in our discussion here. And just thinking about how the use of language actually shapes how we study these different disorders. Humans love to categorize things, don't they? I mean, it seems that, and and if something's similar, sometimes it gets then pushed into a category, a category, and it may be similar, but not same. Um, Exactly. Right. And then treatment can then treat it as same, which might not work. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, the treatments for drug addiction are not terribly effective, which is, you know, we have the opioid crisis in the U.S., which is a horrific, you know, tragedy. And in terms of adopting those treatments for eating disorders, you know, we do have some relatively effective treatments that are empirically based. But I, I just kind of, it's, it's difficult for me to see how we could use things. You know, people have tried different drugs like um, naltrexin and other drugs for, for binge eating that would work with alcohol and they haven't really been very effective. So, so that is a question I think about frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, with, the, with the sugar addiction study, what, what's, your, what's your hope there? as to how it will be effectively used by, I don't know, clinicians or, or people in the field that are actively working in the field? Yeah, well, we, we really hoped that people, in terms of researchers, would think more about the differences between the nutrient content of sugar versus the taste. And I think there is some really interesting work that's being done, not only in rodent models, but also in people that are kind of dissociating the sweet taste that might come from saccharin or sucralose from the actual nutrient value of sugar and how is the gut on this really short time scale? I mean, it's fascinating how quickly your stomach talks to your brain. Mm. So how is that? How can we tease that apart and how does that relate to normal eating behavior and eating behavior that might be disrupted in eating disorders and obesity? And I think clinically, um, I think the term addiction, compulsivity, all of these things are used kind of across the board, as you mentioned. If it looks similar, then we'll say it's the same thing. So I think clinically it would be good for for clinicians to think a little bit more about what does addiction mean, what does it mean for my clients, um, and, and what could this, what could they take away in terms of why this condition is coming about, and is that actually accurate or not? Yeah, fabulous. Um, do you have any plans to um, continue working in the sugar addiction field, or are you moving on to the research that we already discussed on the gut and things? 
Got so that the, the research we discussed is definitely going to be filling up my time for the next couple of years. Um, my lab is working on another study that's that's probing more of the sugar, kind of like I just mentioned to you, kind of looking at the nutrient profile versus mm. taste. So there should be some more work coming out from us soon on that. But I think after you know my PhD, there's certainly a lot of opportunity to maybe revisit this again. I think the the main thing that stands out to me is just that that message on the the intermittent access thing. I think that all too often, well, I mean, people discriminate on the size of a person's body. So I, I actually, when I was very underweight, that was actually the time I was probably binging on and eating the highest amount of sugar I've ever eaten in my life. Um, but nobody would tell me to eat less sugar because I was very underweight. And I think that but people in larger bodies who are also restricting are very discriminated against because then their doctors say to them, restrict more. <laughs> which arguably makes the problem worse. Um, and so I think that that's what I was hopeful for, that it wouldn't just automatically be assumed that if a person is in a larger body and is binging on sugary foods, that they actually need to restrict more. What they probably need to do is stop restricting. Um, and I think that that's what I found hopeful in it. Great. No, that's a fantastic point. And I think talking through these interviews always gives me new ideas. And that's a great thing because I think, you know, GPs in the UK or in the US as well are not great at talking to people who, who might be slightly overweight or obese about their, their dietary intake. And I think, like you said, there's a lot of stigma that, oh, well, if you're this shape or size, then clearly you just need to cut your calories. And I think there's so much more nuance there. And that's a great point that you raised that there should be more discussion rather than just jumping to the conclusion that cutting calories or cutting this nutrient is the best option. Oh, yeah. I've, I've worked with many people who are heavily restricting, but because mm. they're in a larger body, and they're in a larger body because of due to so much restriction, their metabolisms have load. And, but they go into the doctor and basically get told to restrict even more, um, which is incredibly difficult for them. And then doctors not believing them when they tell them that they're mm. actually eating very little. They just um, sort of, I don't know, think that they're eating a lot more than they report to or something like that, which is right. really, again, it goes back to that making people feel really alone, really isolated and like they have no place to turn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I hope that if there are any clinicians listening to this podcast, that they will take that approach as you've just suggested. Well, thanks to Maggie Westwater for coming on and talking to me. Um, it was quite funny because I, I expected her to be English because she's in Cambridge and then um, I was talking on Skype to somebody with an American accent. And so that threw me. But I'm glad she's over there doing the work that she's doing, which is absolutely fabulous. This is probably the, one of the studies that I've been most excited about this year, actually. I think that there's so much uh, stigma guiding the way people even study things like binge eating disorder, food addiction. I think it, it starts from a place of um, stereotypes and assumptions lot of the time in the first place. Um, so it's really nice to see something that's looking at this in a bit of a different light. And um, one thing Maggie and I spoke about afterwards, she was saying that they got quite a bit of backlash for this study, which I said she should take as a compliment. Um, it does go against the grain and it will scare people to be told, well, you know what, it's not actually the sugar that's the problem. It could be the fact that you restrict it. Um, that, that, of course, is going to get backlash. And I think that most of the things that uh, challenge 
stereotypes and stigma and assumptions do get backlash. So go Baggy and go her team. And I'm really excited to see the rest of the research that she does. I, as I said, I will put links in the show notes so you can contact Maggie if you are in England and you're interested in participating in the study that we spoke about. That's all for this week's podcast. If you want to hear more from me, if you're not already sick of listening to me, I have started a YouTube channel. Still not entirely sure why, but it's kind of fun and the cat likes it. So what can I say? Um, random topics, they're usually just a couple of minutes each, um, each video clip. And I usually just rant on about something. I'm probably rather less polite than I am in these podcasts, but hey. So you can take that or leave it. But um, I do have a Tabitha Farrar Recovery Coach channel on YouTube these days. But you can also get in touch with me on Twitter. My handle there is at love underscore fat underscore. And um, Facebook, Tabitha Farrar, Instagram, Tabitha Farrar, pretty much all over the place. And do get in touch with me and tell me what you want to hear in these podcasts, who you want me to interview, and what you're excited about. And also tell me what makes you really mad and annoyed and um, <laughs> the things that you don't want to hear, because that's always interesting too. Thanks for listening, and until next time, cheerio!